Welcome to Harper Audio Presents. This is Sean McManus with Harper Audio. I recently spoke with Blake J. Harris, author of Console Wars, on sale May 13, 2014. In 1989, Nintendo had a stranglehold on the video game industry. Sega was a faltering arcade company with big aspirations and even bigger personalities. Enter Tom Kalinske, whose bold ideas and unorthodox strategies led to a ruthless showdown between Sega and Nintendo. The rivalry was vicious, relentless, and highly profitable, eventually sparking a global corporate war that would be fought on several fronts. Console Wars is the true underdog tale of how Kalinske turned an industry punchline into a market leader. It's the journey of a humble family man with extraordinary imagination who could almost magically turn problems into competitive advantages, often by the seat of his pants, and who ended up building a $60 billion industry. Blake J. Harris is a New York-based writer-director. Harris is co-directing the Console Wars documentary which is being produced by Scott Rudin, Seth Rogen, and Evan Goldberg. He is also serving as executive producer on the feature film adaption. And now a clip of the Console Wars audiobook, available May 13, 2014. You have to hand it to Nintendo, Schroeder said, finishing the article. Like them or not, everything those guys touch turns to gold. You're right, Kalinske replied, turning on the coffee machine. So I guess we'll just have to make sure everything we touch turns to silver. And you know, while we're doing that, we'll find a way to convince the world that silver is more valuable than gold. Count me in, Schroeder said, and then smiled, a Cheshire grin through and through. For weeks prior to Kalinsky's arrival, she'd been hearing how great things would be with him in charge, and how everything would turn around after he took over. At the time, she thought it was just false hope for the hopeless, now, while that skepticism still persisted, she couldn't deny there was a whole lot more hope. But enough pontificating, Kalinsky said. I vaguely recall your entering with the words, there you are. So what can I help you with? Right, Schroeder said, quickly rewinding her mind. I had wanted to ask you about your trip to Japan. Was there anything new on the mascot front? I'm not sure, but Nakayama-san assured me that he'd get us a Mario killer sooner rather than later. Schroeder eyed Kalinsky as if trying to somehow conduct a telepathic polygraph test. And how much do you trust Nakayama's assurances? Kalinsky thought about this for a moment. I'm from the innocent until proven guilty school of thought. I have no reason not to trust him. At this point. Okay, just curious, Schroeder said. Did he at least show you the hedgehog? What hedgehog? Well, thank you, Blake, for sitting down with us. Um, the first question I wanted to ask you is, what got you into the subject of console wars uh, between Nintendo and Sega? Uh, well, thank you so much for having me. Um, well, I think I have two answers to that. What got me into it as a player was I had absolutely no choice because I was a kid and you were automatically sucked in. Um, but, you know, over these past few years, uh, studying it, writing about it, and really just trying to think about it a lot, it was sort of a strange journey into it for me, or at least an unexpected one. Um, you know, I've been a screenwriter for years. Um, my dream had always been to write a book if I found the topic um, to propel me. 
Um, but even with that in mind, I didn't go into this planning to write it. It started a few years ago. My brother gave me a Sega Genesis for my birthday. So it's like almost three and a half years ago. This is what we had when we were kids. Back then, we had the Nintendo with the NES, which we got in like 1989 or so, and it was the coolest thing in the world. And so when Nintendo announced the Super Nintendo, I assumed that would also be the coolest thing in the world. So I remember I begged my parents and asked them every day, can we get the Super Nintendo? And my dad, I distinctly remember him saying, no, because Nintendo will just come out with the Super Duper Nintendo and the Super <laughs> Super Duper Nintendo. And somehow the Sega Genesis was like a loophole to that. It was an entirely different thing. So we were able to get that. And we loved it. I was never very good at playing video games. Um, and I often lost my brother, which was a huge cause for feuding in our household. But, you know, it was a big part of my life. When you're a kid, you're not always conscious of how you choose your interests. And I always felt like, as I joked at the beginning, like it, I, it wasn't a choice to play video games. It just was part of your lifestyle. And so... Getting that Genesis for my birthday a few years ago reminded me of all that, and I hooked it up thinking it would be sort of nice and nostalgic to play these games again, but I found that not only was it that, but these games were like still very enjoyable and very challenging. Knowing that this was such a big part of my life and that there was so many hours spent and so many entertaining games and aspects to the culture, I went to Barnes & Noble on 86th Street, and it's an enormous Barnes & Noble, and I asked where the video game history section was, assuming it would be near the film history or music history section, and the woman like pretty much laughed at me. I thought, you know, <laughs> that's pretty amazing that for an industry that's bigger than music and film, there's not, there was not only not a video game history section, but when I asked for one of the books on Sega and Nintendo, the woman told me there was no such book that they could even order for you, that the only thing they had on video games in the entire store was walkthrough guides. And so that was kind of shocking to me. I, I don't think it, it wasn't like a, a light went off and I thought, I will feel, fill this need. But, but you did. Yeah, but I did. <laughs> and, you know, at first it was just a quest out of personal curiosity. Um, I read what I could on the internet. I read the few books that do exist that are either out of print or harder to find. And I became totally immersed in wanting to, learn, to know more. And I got in touch with Tom Kalinske, who was the president and CEO of Sega of America from 1990 to 96. And after that first call, I was like, this is going to be how I want to spend my next few years. This is going to be a book. I'd love for there to be a movie based on this. I'd love to make a documentary. I'd love to create trading cards and action figures. Like, this is, this is so wonderful. I think there will definitely be a resurgence of playing of these older 8-bit, 16-bit games um, and systems. I know that I connected my Super Nintendo up right after I finished this. And this morning I was on eBay uh, for about $70. I can buy Sega Genesis with every single game, I think, attached, or I don't know how it is, but there will have to be a resurgence in that, that, that after is this like, book. <laughs> that is really, like, the best response. I, you know, I was, as the book, you know, nears its release date, I've been thinking, like, what kind of reaction do I expect? What kind of reaction do I hope for? Obviously, it'd be great if someone said, this is the best book ever, or I love this book, but, you know, I think what I really enjoy is sort of your reaction. Um, I love how it so often when I talk about the book or when someone reads it, their response is very personal. They tell me about, oh, I remember we went to Toys R Us and we got this game, or I hooked up my system, and, you know, basically just shining a light on all the wonderfulness of Sega and Nintendo is really the end goal here, and that's the perfect reaction, so thank you. Yeah, of course. The next thing I wanted to ask you was the detail given from everyone's point of view is amazing. Um, from that of information that you were able to convey, especially with the president and CEO of Sega America, which you mentioned earlier, Tom Kalinske, that was extraordinary. 
how did you gain so much detail? I feel like you were his right-hand man well, the, for the six or seven years that he was at Sega, um, <laughs> if you were not Tom Kulinski yourself. Uh, well, thank you very much for saying that. That was certainly my goal. Uh, I think the greatest specific compliment I received was uh, Mike Fisher, who's mentioned in the book. Uh, he was sort of the liaison to America and Japan, and he was midway through reading it, and he said, I am now convinced that you are Tom Kulinski, and Blake <laughs> Harris is just a nom de plume. Getting to know Tom and making sure that the book was more than just uh, a list of facts, but actually you felt the parts of the book told through his eyes, and you were in his head, you were part of his emotions, was the most important thing to me. I've always wanted this story to reach a mainstream audience. I've, As I wrote it, I sort of imagined my grandmother as the ideal reader, because I knew that would be a challenge, and that she has no interest in video games, but if I can make this something that she would be interested in, if I could connect her to someone like Tom, who's amazing, or even Al Nilsson, Shinobu, Peter Main, to really get inside these guys' heads, that would make this book special. And, and not only that, it would do justice to the story. But specifically in terms of Tom, um, I reached out to him. I sort of made my case on why he should give me the time of day to just speak with me. Um, he is as cool and wonderful and friendly as to me and in real life as he is in the book. So it wasn't that tough of a sell. But as I was writing, I would constantly ask him questions. Uh, I made sure to meet him. I consider him a mentor in my life, a good friend in my life, and I'm so grateful to him for giving me the time and hope that he appreciates, you know, what I've written because I hope that it adds to his legacy. I think that he's just mm -hmm. a fantastic guy. And has he read the book? Oh, yeah. He's yeah. read the book. Um, I have been working on this for about three years or so, and sort of my first step is to write sort of a treatment um, just coming from the film world, and then my next step was to write like a, just a long outline that's sort of the spine of the story, and I sent that to Tom. It was like 80 pages. This was two years ago, and after he read that, he was really very on board. So Nintendo has about 95% uh, market share of the video game market, uh, and so Sega comes in, eventually beats them out in just a few years. What to you separated Sega the most from Nintendo in order to swing the market in such short time? The thing that helped Sega encroach on Nintendo at first and eventually surpass them for a short period of time um, would be the marketing. But I mean marketing in the full sense of the word, not just the the television commercials. That's what people usually think of when they hear marketing. But it was really about um, asking the question of who do we want to market this product to? Um, up until that point, it's hard to remember, but video games were, through Nintendo, were really targeted towards children. Um, it was almost embarrassing for an adult to play Nintendo, um, even if they enjoyed it. So Sega's initial marketing strategy was to go after a different demographic than Nintendo. If they couldn't go head-to-head -head with Nintendo because nobody could, you know, they were going to change the landscape of the battle in the same way that they changed it to 16 bits. Um, so they really went after the teens and the young adults, college students. Um, and then I think that what people remember so much about that time period and why it brings back such visceral feelings and nostalgia is because Sega really made such an emphasis on creating the emotion of playing video games or creating the attitude, which was initially Genesis does what Nintendo don't and then welcome to the next level, weren't just words on a campaign, but it was sort of their attitude all around the office. Um, and that welcome to the next level mentality in particular was something that I know that they specifically spoke about in their meetings. It was, we're going to make this game. How do we take it to the next level? It was just a part of everything they did. Um, and so it was just a full-fledged marketing plan from PR to 
creating Sonic Tuesday, the first global launch, and the first holiday for a game. There's a lot of things that helped Sega beat Nintendo, but it was really marketing that helped get them off the ground. And the marketing section of the book is one of my favorite parts, um, just from the firm that actually executed it to the flashy in-your-face commercials. And, and it seemed as if Nintendo kind of sat on the sidelines for a while and let Sega pummel them with these ads, and Nintendo just said, okay, we're Nintendo, we're going to keep staying our course. Why do you think that was? Why do you think Nintendo just stayed away from the kind of onslaught of marketing against them from Sega? Uh, that is a very central question of the book. Um, I think during one of the interviews for the documentary, I asked one of Sega executives, what did you think of Nintendo's response to your new ad campaign, the Welcome to the Next Level campaign? And he sort of laughed and he said, what response? They, they didn't have a response. Exactly. And in hindsight, maybe that was a poor decision. But I think that's what's so interesting about the battle between Sega and Nintendo is the two different philosophies between the companies. Nintendo didn't respond with their own flashy advertisements um, for a variety of reasons. Um, one being that they saw marketing as sort of, I mean, don't get me wrong, marketing was a big part of their business. They spent probably the same amount of, I mean, they spent more money than Sega at first, and then they spent a lot of money. But to them, um, it was about product development and showing the game, um, and they thought, then maybe marketing was a little bit more style than substance. So even when they spent their $25 million to launch the Super Nintendo, it was all about showing the game footage and showing that here's the games you could be playing and not actually you know, creating the feeling of what Nintendo should mean to you and why you should buy a Nintendo after, or buy your Super Nintendo after having a Nintendo. Um, I think the other thing is Nintendo of America, that is was driven by the president, Minoru Arakawa, and he was very reluctant to uh, get into a sort of negative advertising uh, battle with Sega. He thought, one, that's sort of just frowned upon, um, sort of perhaps from the Japanese influence, and two, that it was, I wouldn't say beneath them, but it was, it would, getting into that kind of battle would detract from what they wanted to do most, which was deliver wonderful joy and entertainment to children. And he was the, the son-in-law of the head of Nintendo of Japan, correct? Yep. Uh, Minoru Arakawa was the son-in-law of Hiroshi Yamuchi, um, whose family had founded Nintendo back about 100 years ago. Um, and he was sort of the one responsible for getting them into the video game industry. And it was a very interesting relationship that um, at Nintendo Corporate Limited in Japan, the parent company, you have this um, sort of dictatorial figure who's feared and respected, and then... Um, across the ocean, you have his son-in-law, who's an, an MIT graduate, a brilliant guy, very different type of personality, um, and they're sort of the ones responsible for taking Nintendo in the various directions they did during this time. The marketing of Sega was kind of to market it to all ages, from adults to kids, so it kind of brings into play a, a big aspect, um, or a certain aspect of your book, of kind of the moral values of video games and, and when there's too much violence and how to rate that violence. Um, I mean, when Mortal Kombat came out, that was kind of the first one that really tipped the scales to, oh, what are we doing? Should this be yeah. um, uh, regulated somehow? So what is your take back then on how they regulated the, um, the violence and the rating system? And then to today, I mean, it's always a hot topic of, should we shield our kids from certain games? Are parents um, in the know enough to know that the Grand Theft Autos and the, the very violent, very real games are 
um, prevalent. Um, what's your take on that? What's very interesting about this era and what makes it different than today, even though console wars continue to go on, is that this really was sort of the wild west days of the video game industry. As you mentioned about the ratings, there was no video game rating system back then. There was no uh, industry trade show. There was, it was sort of an every man for himself, anything goes attitude to whatever extent that can exist in a $4 billion a year industry at the time. Um, and with that, as the graphics became better and we went from 8-bit to 16-bit to FMV video to 32-bit, the games did become more realistic and also, much like the evolution of films, become more action-based and more violent and bloody and sexually filled with sexual innuendo. Um, and there was a time when I even remember thinking as a kid, Mortal Kombat was definitely the big game and I loved it. And I was conscious of the fact like what I loved is that you could rip someone's spine out and what does that say about me? I played Street Fighter the other day and I forget what button I pushed but I killed some man in, in some horrific way and then being an adult now I was still horrified. I was like what, was, what were kids thinking when they were chopping someone in half and all of this, this crazy stuff? Yeah. To me, um, as a kid, I don't know that I distinguish that much between a video game and a cartoon, and that wasn't the stuff that you saw in a cartoon on Saturday morning. You'd see cartoon violence with Bugs Bunny, but he was getting hit with a frying pan or something. He wasn't An being yeah, <laughs> decapitated. So that was a really big deal, and that also was just, you know, that situation which ultimately led to Senate subcommittee hearings in Congress in December of 1993 that were organized by Senator Joseph Lieberman. That's sort of a, one of the climactic aspects of the book. It was very interesting. It also really showed the difference between Sega and Nintendo from a philosophical point of view. Nintendo had sort of made a lot of enemies um, in their rise to success in the previous decade. They were a very strict and controlling company, and that sounds like a negative description, but it's not necessarily meant to be. They were strict and controlling because the industry had crashed before, and they were trying to prevent that from happening again. They were strict and controlling because they knew that you were spending $200 for the system, $50 for a game, and they wanted to make sure that what you bought was worth your money um, and that Nintendo was synonymous with incredible quality. Um, and sort of as per that controlling attitude, they made a conscious decision early on not to include violence or sexual innuendo in their games, whereas Sega, the usurper, was sort of like, had an anything-goes attitude. They, not only did they make friends with third-party publishers and retailers because they did what Nintendo didn't. They were more flexible than Nintendo was. But with the gamers, I don't even, you know, even if you weren't conscious, they offered a lot more variety, a lot more freedom to the game makers and to the publishers. And that's why the Mortal Kombat version for Sega had a blood code that would unlock all the gore of the arcade. And the Nintendo version um, had green sweat. And as I was saying, that, that sort of differentiates the philosophies between the two companies. Howard Lincoln... Nintendo's uh, senior vice president made the decision to not include the blood that was in the arcade version. And when he did that, he even knew we're going to lose sales because of this. People like me as a kid, people wanted the blood. But it was so important to Nintendo that they maintained a certain image and that they were delivering certain products to their consumers that they left money on the table to do this. And I think that says a lot about the difference between Sega and Nintendo. Definitely. I remember as a kid searching for the code or being in school and, and people writing the, the, the blood code on pieces of paper and handing it out to our classmates. And I just remember feeling so special when I finally got that code. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was another thing, too. Um, just sort of that feeling of specialness, I think. Obviously, the intention with the blood code was to sort of find a clever workaround for 
appearing censored, but maybe not really. Um, but, but I think Sega did a really good job of making you feel special, whether you knew the code or you knew about, like I was saying with the marketing, you know, they teased the launch of Sonic 2 for months and months in advance. At the time, that just wasn't done with video games. Um, it was sort of a paint-by-the-numbers kind of release thing, but first they introduced the Sonic and his sidekick that you didn't know was Tails, like from behind. So you sort of had, oh my god, there's something, I think mm -hmm. that's a... Fox. Um, so they were really good at connecting with the consumer, making you feel a certain way and feel special about playing their games. I'm not going to ask you to choose between Sega and Nintendo right now, um, <laughs> but in your eyes, I mean, you, you give this history about 10 years, I want to say, between Sega and Nintendo. What was the best game that came out for, for each platform? Um, was it Sonic? Was it Mario? Was it something else? Um, uh, my favorite game for uh, Nintendo was Mario 3. Um, I think that if people remember that game was initially promoted um, in the movie The Wizard which starred Fred Savage and was the perfect film for that uh, 4 to 12 year old audience that Nintendo was going after. So in the same way that Sega later on would prep their launch, you know, I think that game got me really excited. Um, my personal reason for liking it is probably a little unusual. I had a babysitter at the time and she had lived in Japan so she had all the games for the Famicom which was the Japanese version of the Nintendo Entertainment System early and I was able to play this like six months in advance. Wow. So I just thought it was the coolest. Um, the other game that really meant a lot to me was Legend of Zelda. I think you know from the gold cartridge to the sounds you know that elicits all sorts of smiles and nostalgia. Um, I think that game also did just a really good job of upping the possibility of what a video game could be. Um, it was more than just a run-and-jump game or a shooter game. It was a game that you could spend hours playing and get nowhere but still have fun. And, and it was sort of, in the way that you mentioned the blood code earlier, how you found it out, and it was amazing. Like that, you know, Zelda was the first game I remember actually caused interaction with other people because it was a game in which you had to uh, find items and figure out how to use items, and that social currency back then of knowing where a certain castle was or where you should buy, you know, where you should burn a bush was so valuable. Um, and that sort of created this whole new ecosystem um, of the video game culture that I loved being a part of. <laughs> and um, for Sega, I think my favorite game of all time, and sorry Nintendo, is NHL 94. <laughs> um, Sega, one of their other things that they did early on to differentiate themselves from Nintendo was to really focus on the sports games. Um, you know, if you think back, there weren't too many uh, sports games on the NES or the Super Nintendo at the beginning, or at least even realistic uh, type ones like Madden and uh, the NHL and NBA Live games. And so, as somebody who grew up loving sports, as EA claims, it's in the game. I felt like I was in the game when I played NHL 94, and I just... It was also the only game I was ever good at. <laughs> what about you? Which were your favorite Nintendo and Sega games from that time period? My favorite, I mean, I think my favorite Nintendo was also Super Mario um, 3. Uh, but also for regular Nintendo or Nintendo Entertainment set of System was Tecmo Bowl. Uh, yep. Me and my, my brother-in-law play Tecmo Bowl every time we see each other for probably two to three hours each time. And why do you think that this many years later, 20 plus years now, you play Tecmo Bowl? There's been better, more realistic football games and seemingly better football games, but why that one? I think it's just the simplicity of it. There's two buttons, um, and there's still some sort of strategy. Uh, so 
there's eight plays each, and you have to pick one of the plays, and if the other person picks that play, you're done, and the, the play falls apart. So it's kind of chance and, and strategy at the same time. And it's, it's just simplicity. I don't play the new games. I only, I've gone up to Nintendo 64, and every once in a while I'll still plug in my Nintendo 64 uh, with Mario Kart and, and a few other games when my friends come over. But um, I also think just knowing I have a special bond between that game and myself and all of my friends from college to every once in a while when we get together today, uh, when we can play James Bond, GoldenEye on Nintendo 64 or Mario Kart, or Mario on Nintendo, it's it's that bond that kind of brought us together. Um, and little did we know that this this console wars were, were going on in the background, um, but I think it relates so well to kind of individuals who grew up in that time period and played these games growing up. Yeah, I mean, I've called it sort of the social lubricant for our generation. I mean, it was so... It, in the same way that you don't just call up someone and say, hey, do you want to just come over to my house and talk? You'd say, hey, you want to meet at a bar and meet for a coffee? That was sort of what video games were. You, you would say, hey, you want to come over and play a video game? And you'd talk for hours and talk about girls and yeah. sports, but you didn't realize you were because you were playing video games. To this day, I will text message my friends who live down the street, my friend Brett, and I'll ask him, would you like to come over and play Nintendo 64? That was the perfect excuse. It's like, yeah. So I do have to ask you, one of my final questions is, if you had to pick, you had two systems that you could plug in right now, two 16-bit consoles between Sega Genesis and Super Nintendo, which do you pick? With all my sympathy to Tom Kalinske, I would choose uh, the Super Nintendo. Oh, no. Um, <laughs> I think that for Sega and Nintendo, I do think that Sonic completely embodied the Sega attitude. He was fast, he was hip, he was... Um, filled with attitude from his blazing speed that had never seen before, um, which sort of paralleled their innovative technological strength to the fact that he would tap his foot if you didn't move him for a while because he was right. annoyed with you. Um, so that, you know, that really, his attitude was synonymous with Sega, and Mario as well, I think, really epitomized the Nintendo spirit. Um, he, he was much slower, um, and he was more of an explorer. My favorite parts of the game were trying to find the secret pipes and the secret levels, whereas Sonic, you'd almost push a few buttons and you'd be zooming through the whole level. You don't even know what happens sometimes. Mario was very slow and deliberate, and maybe he would lose a few times, but he would always get back up and he would be there in the end. <laughs> when you look at the future between Sega and Nintendo, I mean, you can go on your, your smartphone and download a, a, a Sonic game uh, as, an, as an application on your phone, but you can't right now download a Mario game. Do you think, in, in just thinking about this and after reading Console Wars, it kind of just makes complete sense. Like, Nintendo yeah. is staying the course, they know what they're doing, this is, this is their motto, and, and they're going Absolutely. that way. You know, is that how you feel? Um, that's how I think. At least. <laughs> yeah, like, right. You know, a lot of people, when I tell them what I'm working on, they, they will maybe download the Sonic game, or they'll say, I try to get the Mario game, but it's not on iTunes, why not? And I want to be like, well, if you read the book, you'll understand Nintendo's mentality. Um, I do make the comparison between the tortoise and the hare and sort of uh, pay Nintendo as a company that had a slow and steady wins the race mentality. And in the end, they did win the 16-bit battle. Um, but, but that's also a matter of how things end. If, if they had not won, then slow and steady would have been a terrible decision. So at this time period, 
you can certainly look at it two ways. Nintendo is sticking to their guns and doing what they've done best in the past, or you can say they are failing to adapt to the changing trends in video games. Um, I think that unlike maybe previous generations, because there's so much connectivity um, and instant feedback in this internet era, Nintendo is maybe more inclined to change what they do. So I guess I wouldn't be surprised to see them uh, become more willing to promote their games in different ways and on different platforms. Um, you know, that's completely just my own personal opinion and speculation. Um, but it'd be interesting to see what they do. Is there anything else that you want me to ask you? Any other questions? Anything you want to bring up? When I answered your question about what would I choose, the Super Nintendo or the Genesis, I chose the Super Nintendo. But I even remember thinking back then, who I really was, like 10 years old, that I probably would prefer to play a Mario game but I wanted to be the kind of person who would play a Sega game. Right. So it was sort of my first introduction into uh, brand consciousness and image consciousness in a way that I wasn't very conscious of at the time, but those inklings were there, and I was having these feelings and realizations that I never had before. It's just interesting to think back. And maybe I'm, I, I'm saying Sega, and after I read it the past couple of weeks, I've been walking around the office asking certain people, are you Sega, are you Nintendo? And I'm and I'm saying to these to everyone that I'm I'm a Sega guy, but at home I have two Nintendos. I don't have any Sega Genesis. <laughs> so you're just posturing. Yeah, they've still branded this image in my mind that Sonic and and Sega is the cool the cool team. So maybe that's why I'm saying that. A lot of that was just the incredible marketing. Um, but but I don't think it was smoke and mirrors. I don't think that Sega was promising me something that they didn't deliver. I think they completely delivered. I think that if Sega had continued throughout the 90s um, to continue to uh, lead the console market or be at the top and continue to provide games and create characters in the way that you had mentioned with Sonic, I would feel differently. But because there was sort of such an abrupt fall-off um, to the Sega we know and love that either maybe just exists in our heads or did exist for a short period of time, it feels like that short-lived period makes me think that I didn't like Sega as much as I did. But I did. It was just... It just <laughs> It was just such a short period. Such I guess in the end, you don't have to decide. <laughs> well, that's really the amazing thing, isn't yeah. it? Um, you can play anything you want. Well, thank you very much for sitting down with us, and, and we look forward to reading and uh, listening to the audiobook of Console Wars. Thank you very much. Um, I'm willing to come back anytime. <laughs> Great. Thank you. Financial reports, sales figures, and market breakdowns can capably tell a story. But the power of numbers will never compare to that of anecdotal evidence. And in the weeks following Sonic's release, everyone at Sega had their own story. A friend called to say that his son kept curling up in a ball and trying to zoom around the house. Some kids at the mall were tapping their shoes like Sonic. The guys at the comic store were arguing about who would win a race between Sonic and The Flash. The realization amongst Sega's employees that what they did in this small office made real-life ripples filled their lives with an anything-is-possible excitement that most of them had lost at some point during their childhood. You've been listening to Harper Audio Presents, available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher Radio. Today we spoke with Blake J. Harris, author of Console Wars, and listened to excerpts from the audiobook narrated by Fred Berman. We hope you'll join us again. Thank you for listening. Um, can you just put the bottle down? Yeah. I'm just afraid that all of the noise... Oh, the I'm sorry. No, no, don't be sorry. We'll cut that out. <laughs> <laughs> all right.